My feelings about Le'Veon Bell are confusing. It's a rare thing that I sit in front of this microphone utterly perplexed unable to formulate a concrete sports opinion about a player or a situation, but that's what's happening with me and Le'Veon Bell's impending free agency. He wants a long-term extension because he deserves it. The Pittsburgh Steelers do not want to sign Le'Veon Bell to a long-term extension because they believe a long-term extension does not represent value at the position, and I agree with that too. Both parties are right. And when I perceive a conundrum this deep, I can't help but think that a holdout is imminent. It has to be. Because Le'Veon Bell is the best running back in the National Football League. No other running back has his resume. Three of the last four seasons, he has 75 or more receptions to go along with at least 1,200 yards rushing each season. He had 1,200 yards in 12 games in 2016. No other running back is as deadly efficient in all phases as Le'Veon Bell. He deserves to be the highest paid running back, and he deserves a long-term contract that protects him in the event that he experiences a catastrophic injury that would threaten his future earnings. But the likelihood of an injury that throttles his ability to perform at the highest level is the very reason why the Pittsburgh Steelers can't justify signing him to a lucrative extension. I mean, this is the ultimate catch-22 in sports. I find Le'Veon Bell's contract situation exceedingly fascinating because of this catch-22. For all the reasons Le'Veon Bell wants a long-term extension, the Pittsburgh Steelers do not want to give him an extension. And he's saying, fine, fine, don't sign me to an extension. I'll sit out. In fact, I might retire. I'm a rapper, you know. I have a label. I'll go be a hip-hop artist full-time. Fine, no problem. See you later. And Le'Veon Bell is one of the few running backs in the NFL who significantly improves the offensive efficiency of his team. He's valuable, but he is a running back. And the pool of running back talent available to replace Le'Veon Bell is rich. And it's only getting richer. The 2018 running back class may be better than the 2015 class, which featured David Johnson and Todd Gurley. You might say, how could it possibly be better than the 2015 class? Oh, you watch. Oh, you watch. Darius Geis was timed running a 4-4-5 in training for the NFL scouting combine. He is going to run a 4-5. He will. Write it down. Darius Geis running a 4-5 at 6 foot 220 would be a 90th percentile plus speed score. Darius Geis and Saquon Barkley are two of the best running back prospects of the last five years. Certainly better than any of the running backs we saw that were drafted last season. And this 2018 running back class is not just ultra-talented at the top, it's also incredibly deep. From Royce Freeman to Rashad Penny to Ronald Jones to Ito Smith, I mean, it goes 20 running backs deep. And in this context, Le'Veon Bell is standing up, raising his hand and saying, I need to be the highest paid running back in the league. You need to invest significantly in a position where significant investments do not pay. When you're building a roster from the ground up to maximize the talent level at the positions that impact the outcomes of games, the running back position is not a priority. Investing in that position is a fool's errand, not only because it's the passing game, not the running game, that most influences the outcome of football games, wins and losses, but the running back position itself 
is highly replaceable. It is. Just look at what happened in Kansas City. Drafting Kareem Hunt in the third round. The Pittsburgh Steelers know that an Alvin Kamara is going to be available in the second round in the form of a Sony Michelle or a Rashad Penny. They know that a Kareem Hunt is going to be available in the third round. They know it. They know an Aaron Jones is going to be available in the fifth round. And they know that running backs like Jarek McKinnon, the most athletic running back in the league, will be a free agent. And he will cost a fraction of what Le'Veon Bell costs. So I think Le'Veon Bell should demand a long-term extension based on his accomplishments because he deserves it. He wants the respect that a long-term contract affords. He wants the financial security that a long-term contract affords. And he deserves that. And the Pittsburgh Steelers should not offer it. And it's that intersection of divergent incentives that creates conflict and fascination. I hope Le'Veon Bell holds out. I hope he holds out for an entire season and sets a brand new precedent punishing organizations that don't pay their best playmakers fair value because that's all he's asking for. And he himself could create a whole new paradigm for future NFL players to enhance their worth in the marketplace. So I'll be following the situation very closely, and I'm interested in Evan Silva's thoughts on this situation. I respect Evan Silva's opinion on NFL matters more than any other individual in this industry, and he has asked to come on the show and talk to me about football, and nothing would make me happier than to sit down in the middle of January and just talk football with Roto World's Evan Silva. Follow him at Evan Silva on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio program. <laughs> yes, the suspense has been building. That's right. And now is the time. The time is now. The man is here. His name is Evan Silva from Roto World. Talk to me. It's good to be back, man. It's good to be back. We've got the season behind us. We're looking toward the off season. This is the easy part. You know, this is the fun part. You know, we, we get to speculate about the draft, speculate about free agency. Um, this is the easy part. And then we will get into the hard part uh, later in the, in the, you know, as the, as the next season approaches, but uh, I'm, I'm excited to break down some things that occurred during the 2017 season with you. I am so relaxed and happy. Just the equanimity of my body. Just wake up feeling light and refreshed because the season is over. The regular season grind of those articles, all those rankings, that heavy weight of the regular season that is just on you. You're just always pushing against throughout those four months of September, October, November, December, and then, oh, it's like a reverse spring. It's cold. It's a barren wasteland in Connecticut right now. But to me, I'm looking out at a beautiful spring day. That's how I feel in the off season. And the idea that I can just sit down with my friend, Evan Silva, and just talk about our fantasy teams and talk about what happened last year without impending deadlines weighing me down. I am so enthusiastic to talk to you right here, right now. So let's talk about it. We're in leagues together. How did your fantasy teams do? Well, I play in a lot of different formats, obviously. I had my best year ever in MFL 10s. Uh, I played a lot of MFL 25s, too. 
Played around 110 to 120 MFL 10s and MFL 25s, 117. Uh, came in second in 19, which really hurts and would have really put me over the top uh, in some of the if some of the second places would have won. But I had about a 15% first place win rate, which I'll take in a game where your expected win rate is about 8%. Wow. In DFS, my year was okay, not great, no big wins. I came out in the green, but especially these days with the rake so high in DFS, you need a big tournament win oh. uh, to really get you deep into the green. Deep into the green. Uh, my season-long and dynasty leagues were solid, not spectacular. Uh, my my group at the $1,750 buy-in for uh, FFPC main event, we made the playoffs, got bounced in the first round of the playoffs. But I loved our season in FFPC. Better than I did. Uh, and I will definitely be be back in 2018. That was a great learning experience. Oh, love the FFPC. I will definitely be back, even though I drafted Julio Jones and Amari Cooper in the first two rounds, which torpedoed me. Otherwise, I had a great draft. <laughs> Devin Funches was a great draft, except you can't win when you start off Julio Jones and Amari Cooper. So you did great. I mean, your best ball record and winnings were incredibly impressive, and I would expect nothing less. I mean, you're one of the signature experts in this industry, and I'm hearing that you know winning your fantasy leagues is a requirement for a fantasy analyst. So my question for you is, should fantasy gamers care if the fantasy analyst makes money in their leagues? Does that establish credibility? I'd say that people who are really sharp don't care about that stuff. People who are really into this are just looking for good information. This is a decision-making game. Who am I going to draft in season long? Who am I going to start in season long? Where am I going to spend my free agent bucks? Who am I going to make my core in uh, for my DFS lineups? And you're much less concerned about the winnings from the supplier of the information than you are the information itself. So obviously I want to be a winner and I, I pride myself on being a winner, but I'm just like any other fantasy football consumer. I read articles, I listen to podcasts religiously, uh, and one of the last things on my mind is how much money is this guy I'm reading or listening to making? I just want good information to help me make better decisions and keep getting better at the game. The most important thing a fantasy analyst can bring to the table are communication skills. The ability to distill these concepts down in a way that most people can understand and to then provide them with actionable information based on those concepts. That's not necessarily something the best high-stakes players are good at. They're big consumers of the content but they're not necessarily interested in communicating with anyone their strategies. There are two distinct skill sets. One, communicating actionable information on the one hand, and then the other hand, taking that actionable information, synthesizing it, and then creating winning fantasy rosters with it. Those are two different things. So get out of here with this requirement that we show a resume of successful fantasy teams and fantasy league victories before you listen to me. Requiring a specific fantasy league winning percentage completely misses the point. Yeah, and a lot of it is entertainment value. And just in terms of the winnings, I mean, I've talked to, you know, super high stakes daily fantasy players about this as well. You know, they'll go through swings where they won't win anything for like 12 weeks of the season. And then, you know, they'll have one big week or I, you know, I, I work a lot with Warren Sharp. He had a year in 2015 where he was like, he hit like 70% on, uh, on totals in sports betting. 
and he still got 30% wrong. You know, that was like a great year, but he still got a lot of stuff wrong. Uh, so it's, it's hard to quantify, you know, resumes and records anyways. Ultimately, what you really want is just good information. When I listen to Adam Levitan, I really don't care about how he did in the previous week. I mean, it's interesting when he talks about it, but, you know, I want to uh, just kind of pick his brain as I'm listening to his podcast and just get smarter. Now, if you want to compare analyst to analyst, it would require that all analysts have a similar bankroll and a portfolio of rosters across leagues in order to create a sample size that allows you to compare them fairly. Otherwise, you have analysts that have a handful of teams, they experience some bad luck, and then you're unfairly dismissing them. Because I know very few fantasy analysts have these huge bankrolls or the bandwidth to participate in more than 10 leagues to get their sample size up. I know that the win percentage is not something that anyone should be paying attention to, but a win percentage that has a sample size going back over a decade that we can all agree on that tells you with certainty, hey, this coach, this general manager is good at his job. And I think we can say definitively the best in football right now is Bill Belichick. But now we're hearing that this may be Bill Belichick's last season in New England. The Seth Wickersham article, I believe, was one of the best pieces of sports journalism in recent memory. What do you think the future holds for Bill Belichick in New England? Well, you're a Patriots fan, so you're not allowed to like the Seth Wickersham article. Well, I'm also a rational, clinical evaluator of content. I do not glean my identity from my fandom, and I'm able to separate my affinity for a team or the players from the truth that can only be brought to light by great journalism. First of all, I have no idea if this is Bill Belichick's final year in New England, and I truly believe that Bill Belichick is legit so focused on his next opponent that I doubt he knows either whether or not this will be his final year. Uh, So if Belichick doesn't know, no one knows. And I certainly won't pretend to know uh, the answer to that question. As for the Wickersham piece, I really could go on and on about this, but I would say that the reaction to the article was completely out of line with the content of the article. First of all, the story was confirmed by Tom Curran of uh, Comcast Sportsnet New England. I know people who have worked in the Patriots organization, uh, and Tom Curran has the best relationship of any Patriots reporter with Bill Belichick. He's the most trustworthy Patriots reporter, and if he says, and he says it's true, uh, and Tom Curran does say that perhaps some parts of the report are slightly exaggerated to make it a better story, which is something that is to be expected from a long-form piece. Uh, Either way, there is actual friction in the Patriots organization, and that is a story. And this particular story was a great one because you hear about friction in a lot of sports organizations, but you don't hear about it uh, inside the Patriots. And the brainwashed Patriots fans who try to claim this report was like fabricated are a group of people who legitimately ignore and deny reality. Ultimately, it's not that big of a deal if the Patriots decision makers are having disagreements. It's about time, like you said, you would have thought they would have had some friction five years ago. Through all the controversies that the Patriots have been through and they've come out on the other side, you would think there would have been much more internal friction. But the fact that they were able to have this cohesive 
management structure and relationship between the players, management, and ownership throughout this entire time, Bill Belichick's entire tenure there. That's the real story that it took this long for any friction whatsoever Mm -hmm. to show up. I mean, they traded away one of the best young quarterbacks in the league. And, and there should be friction about that. There should be friction about that. It's just common sense, and it's inevitable. And I think you could argue that it's healthy. Like, they, they should have disagreements. Not everything is always honky-dory when you're making, when you're making difficult decisions. I mean, sometimes you're going to have regrets about those decisions. You know, sometimes those decisions aren't going to work out. One reason I asked about Bill Belichick's tenure with the Patriots and whether it's coming to an end or not, it's a great point that the answer is definitively, I don't know. Seth Wickersham doesn't know. Tom Curran doesn't know. Nobody knows. Why? Because Bill Belichick doesn't know. That's an incredible point that's lost in the polarizing nature of this story that wasn't actually polarizing. It wasn't a polarizing story. It was simply interesting. It was a piece you read and go, oh, this is fascinating. Oh, this is intriguing. It's not a polarizing story, yet you have Patriots haters going out on one end of the extreme and waving it around as the demise of the franchise, and then the Patriots fans on the other end of the extreme screaming, oh, this is fake news. Exactly. It's essentially a very interesting non-story because I agree with you that Bill Belichick has not considered what he will do in 2018. He is solely focused on the Jacksonville Jaguars in a way that other coaches claim to be having this myopic focus week to week. I think Bill Belichick actually does have that kind of tunnel vision week to week. But what's interesting is his supporting cast will be fleeing this offseason because it looks like Josh McDaniels and Matt Patricia will be taking head coaching jobs, most likely. There's still a number of head coaching vacancies left. So it is an interesting time for Bill Belichick where it seems he was overridden for the first time with a player personnel decision with Jimmy Garoppolo, and he's losing longtime assistants. So you would think that this could be an inflection year for Bill Belichick, and it will be interesting to see who he ends up hiring this offseason to replace Patricia and McDaniels. And what we can assume is, as has been the case with Belichick in the past, they will not be traditional hires. We can't assume these are going to be cocoon hires. Right. Right? The cocoon. Talk to us about the cocoon. Well, I think that the cocoon actually extends outside of just the league, and it actually extends to people who cover the league. Um, So let's just start with the basics. So most people are familiar with the term a self-fulfilling prophecy. The underlying theme behind the cocoon is uh, an attempt at a self-fulfilling prophecy that those people already inside the cocoon have the answers and those outside the cocoon are clueless and the people inside the cocoon are determined to protect this idea. So when someone infiltrates the cocoon with a new idea, that person is very quickly pushed out and made to look like a moron on their way out. It could be Chip Kelly, uh, who didn't work out in Philadelphia because they gave him too much power. Uh, but whose ideas were conveniently all stolen by the rest of the coaches in the NFL. And then he's mocked and ridiculed. Right. Despite the fact that he lasted only a couple years in the league. Or it could be Sashi Brown, who lasted only two years despite uh, filling the Browns roster with offensive and defensive line talent and giving them two top four picks in the 2018 draft so that they could draft whatever quarterback they want. Or they could even draft two quarterbacks and let those guys compete. 
But Sashi Brown eventually got forced out because the quote-unquote football guys got in the ear of the Browns' crooked owner, Jimmy Haslam, and convinced him that Sashi Brown was the problem when in actuality the guys that Jimmy Haslam kept were so obviously the problem that it is painful for anyone who really analyzes this game uh, with a critical eye. So is Jimmy Haslam one of the worst owners in the league? We can say that definitively, right? We can say that as a matter of fact. Without question. He also happens to be under an investigation by the FBI uh, for ripping off uh, the, the for running a scheme to get rich, essentially. He runs the Flying J, which is a truck stop company, and they had a gasoline voucher program for the truckers, and embedded in that program was a scheme to skim money. That's what they were doing. And the reports indicate that knowledge of the scheme went up all the way to the top to Jimmy Haslam. Now, you would think that if he sees a good scheme and he likes a good scheme, he can identify the scheme and say, okay, this scheme is helping us, it's making us money, or in the case of Sashi Brown, this is helping us accumulate talent, this is something we want to go with, but oh, no, no, no. This is why he's the least competent owner in the NFL, because when he finds a good scheme that's actually working and virtuous and not illegal, he wants to throw that scheme out, but he wants to keep the schemes that are illegal and will get you investigated by the FBI. So then he brings in John Dorsey. Is John Dorsey a cocoon hire? John Dorsey is the dictionary definition of a cocoon hire. Yes, he is. That's right. That's right. He's not a genius because he drafted Tyreek Hill. John Dorsey just got fired by the Chiefs for atrocious salary cap management. His draft record in Kansas City was below average to poor. I mean, Eric Fisher, D. Ford in the first round. I mean, there are reasons he got fired by one of the NFL's most respected organizations, and it's because he was bad at his job. The Eric Fisher pick was egregious, especially with Lane Johnson staring you in the face. With all that said, you won't hear anything about that publicly because John Dorsey has planted seeds in the media and is really well-liked by most people. And because most people like him, they won't say the truth about him. And that brings us to the, the cocoon keeper. Yes, the tentacles of the cocoon. Yes, a tentacle of the cocoon. They reach out to the cocoon keepers. Yes, Kevin. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, cocoon-like thinking is actually pretty common. And I mean, it happens in all walks of life. All industries. Uh, They're probably unhealthy, but they're reality. But the cocoon keepers are are by far the worst. I mean, most of them don't even know that they're cocoon keepers. A cocoon keeper is a talking head with an uh, undeservedly big audience who's telling fans of teams that Sashi Brown deserved to be fired. Uh, A cocoon keeper is an announcer telling fans of teams that Tom Cable is a great offensive line coach, despite the fact that the Seahawks invested more into their offensive line than any organization in the last half decade and got basically the worst possible results. Is that true? They invested that much? Yes. Wow. Uh, A cocoon keeper... Um, does hindsight draft analysis, which we all just know is awful. Uh, a cocoon keeper tells us that the Browns, quote unquote, well, I do that a little bit, <laughs> missed on quarterbacks in the draft, even though their plan was never to invest a high draft pick on a quarterback in the 2016 or 2017 draft. Their plan was to build up their offensive and defensive lines, which they obviously did and could not have done any better, and then use one or even both uh, of their top four picks in the 2018 draft 
on a quarterback. I mean, they did not even have close to the infrastructure to support the development of a Division One AA quarterback who needed to fix his mechanics like Carson Wentz or a dual threat quarterback with a history of knee injuries like Deshaun Watson. I mean, the Browns didn't even have an offensive coordinator last year. The Cleveland Browns were at ground zero. They were at football ground zero. They had to build a franchise from the ground up. And how do you build a franchise from the ground up? You start in the center, the offensive and defensive line, the point of attack, and you build out. You don't bring in a quarterback without supporting weaponry and pass protection. That's the way to ruin a quarterback prospect. So they built their organization the right way, following the right steps, creating building block assets with the right positions in the right years to draft those positions. They knew, they saw, they were forward looking. They weren't just flailing around, taking the next guy on the board out of desperation because they were afraid they were going to get fired like the Houston Texans did in drafting Deshaun Watson. Yes, they were fortunate. They hit on Deshaun Watson, but that was a desperation pick to save jobs. This is not how Sashi Brown decided to build the Browns organization. That's not how they went through their player personnel evaluation process. They were much more forward looking. They had a grand plan a process hashtag process in place and they weren't allowed to see it through they were fired before it could fully incubate which is so egregious that they would strangle this nascent talent rich franchise just at the very moment it was starting to sprout It's perplexing and maddening all at the same time. It makes me furious every time I think about it. One thing that infuriates me, and, you know, this is just... God damn it! ...about John Dorsey. They knew this was going to be a great quarterback class. They knew this was the year to get a quarterback. Wait, wait. Those quarterbacks in the last two years were flawed and risky. They saw the Josh Rosens coming in 2018, and now those individuals aren't even there to take advantage with the picks that they accumulated with genius moves time and time again. John Dorsey, of course, will be the guy making the picks. And John Dorsey, not only is he a cocoon hire, but he accomplishes the rare feat of being a a cocoon hire and a cocoon keeper. Uh, Because as soon as he got the Browns GM job, he lied to the public and made the public dumber by saying that the Sashi Brown regime didn't get real players, which is a flat out lie. How could he say that with a straight face? Of course, John Dorsey is predestined for success because of all the assets that Sashi Brown left him. So he's setting himself up to look like a friggin' genius when he's really just a pawn. He's Brian Colangelo. Exactly. If you are Sashi Brown, you must have a close relationship at this point with Sam Hinkie. I mean, you have to imagine that they went to Cabo together and just drank on the beach sharing stories of parallel experiences getting completely fucked in major sports leagues. <laughs> it's, just, it's uncanny how these two visionaries were mistreated and then discarded and then undeserving non-talents brought in to replace them and usurp their work and pawn it off as if it were their own. And it hasn't even happened yet for John Dorsey. They were still 0-16 last season, but it's coming. We can all agree it's coming, right? The Browns are coming. You would agree? I mean, I would say that 
there is no way that you could mess this up. It's an unbreakable franchise at this point. It's a dummy-proof franchise. You take Josh Allen at one, and then you take a running back at number four. Well, funny you should say that, because Mel Kuyper's latest mock just came out, and he has the Browns taking Josh Allen at one and Saquon Barkley at four. You can't make this shit up, Evan. You can't make this shit up. There is one path, a singular way, to break an unbreakable, dummy-proof franchise, and that is to go Allen and Barkley 1-4. I'm an atheist, but any deities or godlike beings out there, please do not let this happen. I'm way too invested in the Browns at this point to allow that to happen because I put my hopes and dreams for the analytics movement in this franchise. I wanted it to be this shining beacon on a hill for sports analytics, and it didn't happen this season, and now Sashi Brown's fired, and I'm sitting here with all of this latent affinity built up. I have become a Browns fan in the process, and I can't undo it. I can't put the toothpaste back in the tube and stop being a Browns fan. So now I'm forced to root for people like John Dorsey and Hugh Jackson to succeed in spite of themselves. So we just have to now become religious. Just have faith that it's going to happen somehow, some way. That incompetence can lead this franchise to great heights. It's a weird place to be. Yeah, and I think we can we can rewind this a little bit and just kind of talk about how this did come to be, how you make the absolute worst possible decision when you're in Jimmy Haslam's uh, shoes. There have been multiple reports out of Cleveland that Jimmy Haslam uh, discusses the future of his organization with football writers like Peter King. And look, man, I have great respect for Peter King. Historically, he's written great football books. But I would say that this is not probably not the guy that you want as your consigliere if you are trying to be a forward thinking football franchise. But Jimmy Haslam clearly has no idea what he is doing. And uh, I, I feel like that is all you need. All you really need to know is that this dude is getting investigated by the, the FBI. And by the way, Peter King came out publicly after the season twice and said that Hugh Jackson deserved to keep his job after one in 31. I would be very surprised, honestly, if Peter King watched a single Browns game or even looked at a Browns box score this entire past year. So obviously, at some point, there was a point of fracture between Sashi Brown and Hugh Jackson. And it all came to a head when Hugh Jackson tried to trade the assets that Sashi Brown had accumulated for the franchise for the Bengals backup quarterback, A.J. McCarron, who has an unresolved contract situation for 2018. We don't even know if he's a free agent or an unrestricted free agent, and he probably isn't very good. And by all accounts, Sashi Brown did not want to make that trade, and he may have sabotaged it. And Brown's ownership decided that they had to make a move, and their move was to keep Hugh and fire Sashi. The Browns and the Bengals had agreed in principle for the Browns to acquire A.J. McCarron, and that specific paperwork that was required was never faxed into the league office, and that the trade deadline came and went, the deal was never executed, it was null and void, and it was waved around as evidence that Sashi Brown and his staff are incompetent, when in reality, Sashi Brown and his staff wanted nothing to do with that trade, because anyone that looks at that trade on its face knows that's counter to their entire philosophy. Of course they didn't want to do that trade, the fact that the coach went around the general manager to architect a trade tells you everything you need to know about Hugh Jackson. And it makes sense that that individual 
would have a strong relationship with an owner under investigation by the FBI. Yep, I mean, Sashi Brown is a modern-day martyr. What about Paul D. Podesta? Is he still in Cleveland? Yeah, he's still technically with the organization. He's still listed as their chief strategy officer, and they are still technically also employing Andrew Barry, uh, who was sort of billed as the Browns' top personnel decision maker when Sashi Brown was the EVP executive vice president. Andrew Barry was really the guy with the most influence picking the players. The Browns hired him when he was 28. He went to Harvard. He played football there. Uh, So there are definitely some remnants from the old front office, but we really have no idea what their true roles are right now. And it's certainly possible that they are still in the process of being determined. I mean, in Cleveland, the power structure is so nonsensical. Everyone reports to the owner. John Dorsey, the new GM, isn't even technically in charge of the hiring and firing of the Browns head coach. And I don't even think that John Dorsey is technically uh, Paul DePodesta or Andrew Barry's direct boss either it's just really messed up man this is quintessential dysfunctional organization again the cocoon concept the new idea killing cocoon is not reserved just for football this is not a football concept this is a concept that spans industries and the idea that you would create an organization a pyramid management structure where everyone reports to the owner is a common dysfunctional power structure across corporate America, and that's what we're seeing in Cleveland. Now, we know that Hugh Jackson is a below-replacement-level coach. It's a fact. You go 1-31, you're not good at your job. Anyone would know that. Any non-football fan would look at the Hugh Jackson resume and know immediately he's no good. He's no good, but he's coming back. So we know he's bad, but let's put it in context. How bad is he? What would the Browns' record have been with good coaching? Well, Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders said that the Browns, uh, based on his formula, they should have won between three and four games. Um, in terms of like specific coaching decisions that he made wow. offensively that wow. were just disastrous, we have to start with the quarterback. I mean, I have never seen worse handling of a young quarterback than what the pr- Browns put Deshaun Kaiser through this past year. And I, you know, think whatever you want about Deshaun Kaiser as a prospect, it's very possible he simply is not going to work out. I mean, that's probably the likeliest outcome, but let's go back. So David Lee, the Browns quarterbacks coach said repeatedly publicly before the season that Deshaun Kaiser was not ready to play even as he was having a pretty promising preseason and David Lee kept saying this but Hugh Jackson of course starts Deshaun Kaiser anyway doesn't just start him but gives him like a playbook menu that he would have given Carson Palmer in his prime nothing easy nothing to make the process easier on Deshaun Kaiser who basically started for less than two years at Notre Dame and was one of the youngest week one starting quarterbacks in NFL history and wasn't ready to play according to his own quarterbacks coach. And Hugh Jackson is asking Deshaun Kaiser to run an offense where his wide receivers have to win one-on-one isolation patterns when those wide receivers were, of course, terrible or raw. I mean, they were leaning heavily on Ricardo Lewis and Rashard Higgins for most of the year. And Deshaun Kaiser has to make full field reads. Nothing was simplified. And then Kaiser begins to struggle. Shocking. Shocking. Yes, shocking. Set up to fail by Hugh Jackson. And then benches him again. And by the end of the season, his confidence was obviously shot. And Duke Johnson was painfully underutilized. And so was David Njoku. I mean, the Browns legit weren't even playing their best (laughs) players 
and they proactively set up their quarterback to fail. What was the best example of a quality player not getting enough playing time last season? It's probably too early to call David Njoku a quality player uh, because he's a developmental player, but that award would go to Duke Johnson. What about on the defensive side of the ball? Defensive side of the ball, you know, this was so bad. I mean, so the Browns defensive coordinator is Greg Williams, and he is the classic example of a coach who does not even concern himself with what the team he is facing the upcoming week, what they do and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Greg Williams runs his scheme. Wait, wait, what? Greg Williams runs his scheme. He doesn't look for tendencies from the opposing team so they can prepare for those tendencies and they can jump routes and they can call blitz packages at the right time to create turnovers. He doesn't do that. The biggest part of Greg Williams scheme is actually blitzing. The Browns blitzed at the highest rate in the NFL this past season of all 32 teams and they generated the fewest pressures in the NFL. Think about that for a second. If they know you're going to blitz every time it ceases becoming a surprise and your blitzes are straight up not working, but you keep doing them anyway because that's your scheme. And in sub-packages like nickel and dime passing downs, most teams obviously insert extra defensive backs. The Browns would constantly leave three linebackers on the field on obvious passing downs. The only other team in the NFL that does this uh, frequently is the Carolina Panthers. The Panthers have friggin' Luke Keekley, Thomas Davis, and Shaq Thompson, literally the most athletic linebacker core in the league. Guys who can cover. Right. I mean, Thomas Davis played safety at Georgia. Shaq Thompson played running back at UCLA. The Browns' three linebackers for most of the year were Joe Schobert, James Burgess, and Christian Kirksey. Who? And so the Browns just got gashed all year by passing games, and particularly by tight ends, as anyone who plays fantasy knows. And of course, exacerbating those problems against tight ends was the fact that Greg Williams was out here pretending Jabril Peppers was Sean Taylor. Because Peppers, like Sean Taylor used to be under Greg Williams, would line up 25 to 30 yards away from the line of scrimmage. Like you look at the the Browns defensive alignment from an overhead view and it legit looks like a punt return formation. So this, of course, creates massive gaps in their defense. And Greg Williams straight up lied about his defense after the season. He told reporters that he ran more zone coverage than he ever has in his life or something and basically blamed it on Sashi Brown. He blamed it on the Browns personnel. And like the personnel was forcing him to use more zone than ever. And that was quickly debunked by people who actually chart things like that and know the percentages. Greg Williams had the same zone and man coverage rates he had with the Rams the year before. Greg Williams was just out here running the same shit ass scheme. He always does. And then he lied about it. This is the same Greg Williams who architected the bounty system in New Orleans. That Greg Williams. Same guy. The same Greg Williams who wears fake glasses to look smarter. The same Greg Williams who dyes his goatee for vanity purposes. This is the guy that either Hugh Jackson or Jimmy Haslam hired to run the defense. This guy, this retread. Is there a better example of a cocoon hire in the history of the league than Greg Williams? No. I'm emotionally invested in this organization and the fact that time and time again, you just go down the roster 
from David Njoku to Deshaun Kaiser to Jabril Peppers. They're just setting up players to fail time and time again. And these are talented players. Jabril Peppers is a hell of a football player. You need to put him in the same position you would put a Tyron Matthew. Someone that can go sideline to sideline. Someone that can be in the mix. You need to put him in the mix so he can use his instincts. Jabril Peppers is not Earl Thomas. He's not Ed Reed. He's not a tactician. He's an attack dog. You don't put an attack dog 25 yards from the action! And the Browns finished last in the NFL in turnovers forced. And a big reason for that, well, first of all, they were essentially playing with 10 men on defense because Jabril Peppers was lining up like a punt returner. (laughs) And they played off-zone coverage. And they were not challenging receivers. They were not getting pressure on the quarterback and they were not challenging receivers. And they were never in situations where they could create turnovers. They literally ran their defensive scheme to essentially prevent their players from creating turnovers. I had a show sheet. I don't anymore because I tore it up and threw it away while you were talking because I'm that frustrated. I don't have any notes. This is the new show sheet right here. That's what we have. That's what I'm going off of for the rest of the show, Evan. It's been established by football outsiders that the combination of Hugh Jackson and a full season offensive coordinator vacancy and the ultimate retread in Greg Williams cost the Browns three to five games. (laughs) And they demoralized key pieces of their franchise, including Deshaun Kaiser, to a point that they may never recover. Deshaun Kaiser may be broken forever based on how he was treated by Hugh Jackson and that coaching staff. We talked earlier about the offensive line. Is there one area of the team that you can say definitively, this particular unit is good now, and it's going to be good in the future, and there's no way these coaches can fuck it up. Would that be the offensive line? They have a solid offensive line. Uh, I mean, Deshaun Kaiser had a weakness coming out of Notre Dame that everyone knew, and it was his tendency to sort of process information in the pocket slowly, and he would end up holding on to the ball too long. So when you have a rookie quarterback with that particular flaw, obviously the sheer number of sacks that you allow is going to go up. And he's the youngest rookie quarterback of the 2017 quarterback class. Literally the least prepared to start immediately of the 2017 rookie quarterbacks. And what do they do? They start him in week one. Because of course. Because they're actively trying to sabotage their roster. They're actively trying to get the least out of the players on their team. It's stunning. It's so astounding and unfathomable that you would manage people the way Hugh Jackson managed people. Again, not talking about this in a football context, just taking a step back and saying, how do successful organizations run? They empower individuals. They are intellectually curious. They evaluate the talent in their organization and then deploy them in a way that optimizes their skills for the long run. So they get the most in the long run. And this is just nothing but short run, backward thinking time and time and time and time again. And it's just bewildering that this would be possible at the top of the sport. What you think of as the top of a food chain, that such a competitive meritocracy to get to that place where Hugh Jackson is, that this seems impossible, but yet possible. It happened. I'm looking at the record. It's 0-16. I can see it. It's on the computer screen right now. And I just, I, it's hard to believe. Everything you're saying, I believe, 
yet I don't. But they, they do have the building block of having a solid offensive line. I mean, they finished number 14 in Football Outsiders adjusted line yards for run blocking. So that's slightly above average. And then they were number 22 in Football Outsiders pass protection metrics, so slightly below average. And that was with Joe Thomas, their future Hall of Fame left tackle, missing over half of the season with a torn triceps. And in the NFL, when you are optimizing your on-field decision-making and your personnel and your scheme, you can win with average offensive line play, which is what the Browns have. But the on-field decision-making and scheme were just complete shit and in no way suited or you know molded to account for their their personnel strengths and weaknesses. So obviously the Browns didn't win anything. Now you talked about the defensive line being a strength as well. And they drafted Miles Garrett last year, number one overall. What does the talent look like on the defensive line? Is that a building block for the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. Miles Garrett was excellent as a rookie. We can start with that. Um, you know, as expected, he was like a high floor. He battled some ankle injuries, uh, but he was like a high floor pick with an enormous upside. And I think that he gave you pretty much everything that you wanted to see as a rookie. Uh, they uh, also have Emmanuel Agba, who um, Justin Mosqueda, who uh, is one of the best uh, defensive linemen uh, analysts, uh, showed had uh, one of the highest uh, uh, rate of tackles for losses during the 2017 season. Let me guess, 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 let me guess. They didn't play him a full complement of snaps for some odd reason. His snap share was low. Well, he got hurt. Uh, th- that guy who falls into that category, like the the defense's version of David Njoku or Duke Johnson, would be a guy by the name of Larry Ogunjobi, uh, who was a middle-round pick, and he was crushing it early in the season on like limited snaps. And they just refused to, to play him full time. They kept playing uh, this dude named Trevon Coley, who's like been around the NFL and kind of a replacement level player. But this Larry Ogunjobi is just a freak, spark freak, super high yeah, baby. production at the college level. And he was ready to go. And they refused to play him uh, as much as they should have. They also have Danny Shelton. He is a solid run defending role player, a critical piece of the fact that they had uh, one of the best run defenses in football. They have Carl Nassib, who's a versatile defensive lineman, by, by no means dominating. Um, but, you know, they have uh, Jamie Metter, who's another good role player. I mean, they legit go like six or seven deep on the defensive line. Not many teams can say that. Most of the teams that can say that are playing in the playoffs right now. The Browns did not allow a lot of fantasy points to opposing running backs, even though they experienced significant negative game scripts. So normally the teams that find themselves in significant negative game script end up allowing a lot of yards and touchdowns to opposing running backs because those teams are more apt to try to milk clock, run the ball in the fourth quarter. The Browns were facing that dynamic and yet did not allow running backs to score a lot of fantasy points. So this is very encouraging for the defensive line moving forward. But Even more important is the secondary because they need to be able to stop the pass at some point. I thought that Jason McCourty free agent signing last season was particularly savvy. Mm -hmm. At some points throughout the year, he was top 10 on the playerprofiler.com cornerback rankings. What did you think of their free agent signings on defense last season? And where do you think they should focus this offseason? Yeah, so they made... Four big free agent investments last offseason. Kevin Zeitler, their right guard, obviously a stud. He finished top 10 in pro football focuses guard ratings, as he always did 
in Cincinnati. He's been like a top 10 guard per PFF for like a half decade straight. Uh, Pro Football Focus also gave J.C. Treader a top 15 grade among centers. He was another one of their big free agent pickups. Uh, Sashi Brown signed Jason McCourty for peanuts before the season, and that allowed the Browns to get out of Joe Hayden's bad contract. And Jason McCourty was their number one corner, and he played better than Joe Hayden did this year in, in Pittsburgh. He played well, but he was another player who did not command a full snap share. For some reason, they didn't play Jason McCourty full time. I didn't understand that. And he spent a large majority of the, whereas like Joe, like, so apparently another reason for the, the, the fracture between Sashi Brown and Hugh Jackson was that Hugh Jackson really wanted to keep Joe Hayden. Uh, and so we can kind of compare one for one Joe Hayden versus Jason McCourty. Jason McCourty was way better than Joe Hayden this past year. He's way cheaper. And he spent the year shadowing number one receivers like A.J. Green. Joe Hayden would just play on one side. And and the Browns have all these guys under contract for next season and beyond at pretty good prices. They signed Jason McCourty to a two-year, $6 million contract. His base salary next year is $625,000, Evan. That's a great signing. That's per Roto World, by the way. They also have the lowest free agent liability for the 2018 offseason. So they don't even have to worry about like John Dorsey. You know, he, he screwed up all these contracts in Kansas City. He really can't screw this up because he's not going to even have to really go like re-sign anyone. Isaiah Crowell would be their biggest free agent by far. Um, and I don't think that they're going to resign him. Their big results-based mistake, obviously, was Kenny Britt. He did not work out in the slightest. I mean, free agency is a hugely imperfect means of team building. The Browns hit on three of their four free agent investments. Especially free agent wide receivers. I mean, that is the ultimate crapshoot. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at look at all the, the free agent receivers that were disappointments this year. They could have re-signed Terrell Pryor. Oh, it would have been just as bad. So they wound up getting three of their four free agent pickups right. Uh, and that's a high hit rate when you're talking about you know using free agency to supplement your roster. So they don't have anyone to franchise tag this year? No. Now you know that Pittsburgh is threatening to franchise Le'Veon Bell rather than signing him to a big extension. What do you think about Le'Veon Bell's situation in Pittsburgh? He's threatening to hold out, maybe even retire, if he doesn't sign an extension where he believes he's being valued properly. What should Le'Veon Bell do, and what should the Steelers do, and do you think there's an impasse coming? It's a little bit difficult of a situation to analyze because it really is so dependent upon what Le'Veon Bell is going to do. So Ian Rappaport reported that the Steelers are going to give him the franchise tag again. Uh, I think it makes sense from the Steelers standpoint to not commit long term money to him, especially after how hard they've worked him. This past year, he had his most carries uh, of his entire career. Um, and I, I, it's, it's a tough one for him personally, because at age he's 26 years old uh, at age 26, getting a huge lump sum that will be like 14 or 15 million dollars guaranteed. You know, he would prefer to have. 40 million guaranteed over a five or six year period, I guess. But being able to get these annual huge guaranteed lump sums like Kirk Cousins has done uh, from the Redskins. I mean, that, you know, that that would be very tempting if I were in Le'Veon Bell's shoes. 
the risk for him is getting injured. Darrell Rivas can get away with it. Kirk Cousins can get away with it at those positions. Again, when you're on the periphery, but when you're in a car accident, facing a collision with a linebacker 30 times in a game, the risk is much higher. It's fascinating. I think that Le'Veon Bell should hold out until he gets a long-term contract, and I think that he will. I think this will be a great case study for the power of the holdout. We saw Aaron Donald hold out one game. As an experiment, I'd love to see Le'Veon Bell hold out well into the regular season, force the Pittsburgh Steelers to play their backup running backs, to play James Conner, and putting some pressure on that organization to sign him. And he'll end up doing it for everyone. He'll end up being Le'Veon Bell the martyr for all NFL players, especially the running backs. Because when they look across sports, they look at what NBA players are making, it is demoralizing if you're in Le'Veon Bell's shoes. Okay, I account for this much of my team's offense. My team's success is heavily tethered to me and my performance. And my job really hurts. And I'm at risk every time I touch the ball. And yet I'm not going to be paid a fraction of what a backup point guard is paid. At some point that wears on you. So I'm team Le'Veon Bell this offseason. Absolutely. So looking at the free agent crop that's coming, who should the Browns target? And who do you think should consider the Browns as an under the radar attractive destination? I haven't really started mapping out free agency yet, but I think that it would make sense for the Browns to make a bid on Kirk Cousins. They need another receiver for sure. Uh, and it's a pretty good class of free agent wide receivers. Someone like Allen Robinson would make a lot of sense for them. Yes. I mean, I'm rooting for Josh Gordon to succeed, but I think that as an organization, you have to sort of conduct your offseason business as if he isn't even a part of your 2018 roster. Uh, obviously, Isaiah Crowell is a free agent. They'll probably look at running backs. Uh, it's it's really not a cliche always to say that uh, you can never have too many pass rushers or defensive backs. The Browns, again, they had a great run defense last year, but they need to get better at stopping the pass. Some most of that is going to come from scheme, uh, but they can they can always afford to add you know another edge rusher, uh, another cornerback to to push like Jamar Taylor, who didn't have a great season after having a good season in 2016. I want the Browns to sign Rashad Melvin. He's my guy. He was probably the most underrated player in the NFL last season. He was a top 10 cornerback based on a lot of our advanced metrics on playerprofiler.com and yet was never talked about. I think that he would be the perfect under-the-radar signing by the Browns to complement Jason McCourty. They should also invest in that position in the draft, make the secondary a strength. I think that would really unlock this team I think this was the best 0-16 team of all time. I think the Browns are ready to win. I don't think anyone should be surprised if they have a winning record next year. Do you agree? They should. You, you agree with that? They should, yeah. I mean, they have a they, – they, it's funny because they get ripped by quote-unquote football guys. They built the team really like exactly how a, a football – quote-unquote football guy would build it by building up the offensive and defensive lines first. Now they have the opportunity to draft a quarterback. That's so true. And to get that quarterback on a rookie deal. Um, and, if hey, if they get back uh, Josh Gordon for another season – uh, they should have a functional running game with their offensive line. Uh, and if they can you know, clean up the schematic atrocities, hire an offensive coordinator for, for crying out loud, like, you know, make better decisions that are designed to challenge receivers off the line of scrimmage. Get a guy like Rashawn Melvin. He is a man corner. 
You give Rashawn Melvin to Greg Williams. He doesn't have some excuse that, oh, I don't have the personnel to run the scheme that I want. Right. Which, again, he runs the friggin' same scheme every year with every team that fires him. Um, but Rashawn Melvin would be a man coverage corner to play across from Jason McCourty. By the way, we had the name of the show. Schematic Atrocities in Cleveland. That's the name of the show. I know the Browns are going to draft a quarterback in round one. They are. There's just no way they don't. If they don't, I will be dumbfounded. They are going to draft a quarterback. But I'm not ready to move on yet from Deshaun Kaiser because I'm never ready to dismiss a player for struggling at age 21. I mean, since when is that a good idea? Jared Goff struggled at age 21 last year, and then what happened, right? Deshaun Kaiser was number four in the NFL in deep ball attempts last season, so he was aggressive trying to push the ball downfield, and he didn't even start all the games because they were yo-yoing him in and out of the fucking lineup all the time. And yet, 77 deep balls, more than five per game. So he has the courage to throw the ball downfield. He could be one of the NFL's signature gunslingers if they nurture him along correctly conservatively so I love the idea of Deshaun Kaiser and another high pedigree quarterback coming to the roster and competing for that job I like that idea a lot I like competition I think it brings the best out of players do you think it's possible that Deshaun Kaiser could be the 2018 Jared Goff the big obstacle is going to be the opportunity, you know, because is he going to get the opportunity? Are they just going to turn the page on him? I mean, it was incredible how frequently, like on a weekly basis, Hugh Jackson would just throw Deshaun Kaiser under the bus in weekly press conferences. Why does he do that? Why? You gain nothing from that. That's a lose-lose move. I mean, Hugh Jackson is a master at deflecting the blame. After the 2016 season... It serves no one. He fired his entire defensive staff. After the 2017 season, he fired his entire offensive staff. This motherfucker's Machiavelli. He is a Machiavellian coach, this motherfucker. So I read a comment from a team beat reporter that the Browns are considering trading Corey Coleman this offseason. What do you think of the idea that it's time to move on from Corey Coleman? I mean, sorry, I didn't didn't even give you a chance to answer. He's on his rookie deal! What are people talking about? Everyone that covers the Browns, everyone that's a fan of the Browns, everyone with the Browns, except Paul D. Podesta and this other guy that you talked about that's picked a lot of players and knows what he's doing, that still has a role that no one knows about, he's fine, but everyone else has lost their mind, including me! You don't trade really good, even after they have had two relatively disappointing seasons to begin their career due to broken hands, like the flukiest, you know, one of the flukiest injuries that you can have. Two broken hands, twice. Certainly not an injury that is foreshadowing of future injuries in all likelihood. It's just horrible luck. You do not just all of a sudden give up on that player, especially when you have him on a rookie deal, which I mean that you want players on rookie deals. Those are the most valuable commodities in the NFL are talented players on rookie contracts where, uh, you know, they're they're not hurting your salary cap. And if you can get, you know, that's that's what uh, the, the Seahawks, what made the Seahawks great. They had a bunch of hits in the draft. All those guys were on rookie contracts. Eventually, they had to make tougher decisions, uh, and their rosters you know, sort of st- started to fade. Trading Corey Coleman would be like the Seahawks trading Paul Richardson last offseason. That idiotic. 
Now, of course, no one's talking about trading David Njoku. He's my favorite player on the Browns. Is he your favorite player? He's up there. Uh, he, he's definitely up there. You know, we talked last offseason when he was coming out, uh, out of the draft about that statistic where he averaged 11.2 yards per reception after the catch. Wait, after the catch? That's after the catch. That's Wait, 11 yards per reception of yak? <laughs> I love that stat. What was really frustrating about David Njoku as a rookie, though, was was the Browns' usage of him because they could not, for the life of them, figure out how to get Seth DeValve and David Njoku on the field together. So they just split it down the middle. It would be either Seth DeValve on the field or David Njoku on the field. They could not figure out how to put David Njoku like at slot receiver, get Rashard Higgins off the field, and use both of those guys. Seth DeValve is like an athletic guy. He, yeah. you know, he he's a plus contributor, and so I'm not saying that they should, you know, erase him. No, but they should have come up with ways to get both of these guys on the field, and maybe if they had an offensive coordinator, they could come up with an idea like that. It's called 12 personnel, right. Cleveland Browns, 12 personnel, or just stick Seth DeValve, who is essentially a pumped up slot receiver yep. in the slot and let your beast two-way tight end play in line like Rob Gronkowski. David Njoku has a Rob Gronkowski skill set. Play him as you would Rob Gronkowski or Travis Kelsey, who is his best comparable player on playerprofiler.com. You mentioned possibly signing a Kirk Cousins. If they sign Kirk Cousins, do you think this is a playoff team? I'm not even kidding. That's a serious question. I think that they would probably hover around 100 uh, around 500, uh, you know, just guessing uh, they still have a lot of young players that, you know, need to play and improve. Um, so they, they would still have one of the youngest rosters in the NFL. Uh, that doesn't mean that they can't win with those guys. Uh, but I absolutely think that they, they should and they probably will take a big jump in terms of one loss and get, you know, getting, uh, adding a top 10 or top 12 NFL quarterback to their roster. I mean, that, that fills the biggest hole on their roster. And they have five draft picks in the first three rounds of the 2018 draft. If they hit on some of these draft picks who may be able to contribute right away, that would provide a turbocharge to this roster. I'm very excited about the possibility of what the Browns can do in this draft. But the draft picks that they've accumulated that they will then parlay into talent via the 2018 draft were stockpiled by Sashi Brown. But the sports media industrial complex loves ridiculing Sashi Brown, as you mentioned. The cocoon capers love to ridicule Sashi Brown and dismiss all these draft picks as the money ball approach that doesn't work. The money ball approach that doesn't work. Money ball. This is literally how the Patriots approach the NFL draft is how Sashi Brown approached the NFL draft. But because it's Bill Belichick, he knows what he's doing. And because it's Sashi Brown, he's an idiot. That's part of what's maddening to me about how the cocoon takes over and hijacks the narrative around these teams. So looking at this upcoming Browns draft, we're clearly excited about it. I believe the Browns should draft a Minka Fitzpatrick or a Bradley Chubb at one because 
if Jalen Ramsey and Marshawn Lattimore have taught us anything, it's that a cornerstone defensive back at that point in the draft has a high floor and could be a major difference maker. So I love either Minka Fitzpatrick or Bradley Chubb at one. And then allow the Giants and whoever else to draft quarterbacks and then either take Sam Darnold at four or if it were me, I were running the organization, I wouldn't take Sam Darnold. I would draft Baker Mayfield. Do you think the Browns should target Baker Mayfield in the draft? Yeah, they could theoretically take Mika Fitzpatrick at one. If they have like a similar grade on those three quarterbacks, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen, and Baker Mayfield, if they have like a similar grade on all those guys, they could just take which one ever, whichever one falls to them at four. Yeah, that's right. Just let the other teams make the decision for you. Now, I talked to Drew Dinkmeyer, and he mentioned the possibility of the Browns drafting two quarterbacks early. What do you think about that tactic? I think it's interesting to talk about, and I think that there's no chance of a guy like John Dorsey thinking outside the box and doing something like that. I mean, you don't think John Dorsey appreciates the asymmetrical upside of the quarterback position so much so that he would draft two in the early rounds? You don't think John Dorsey thinks like that, Evan? No. (laughs) He was asked about uh, quarterbacks that lack size. And he said he mentioned in the same breath the names of Russell Wilson and Chase Daniel. Uh, So, yeah. So I, I, you know, I think that ultimately he's not going to be high on Baker Mayfield because of his size. And I think that ultimately they are going to take either Sam Darnold or Josh Rosen at one or maybe Josh Allen. You know, I know that that sounds ridiculous to you and you and I, but I really think that that's probably in play. If the Browns draft Josh Allen, I may never watch football again. watch football again that's the show evan Woo. all right you think it was all right you were phenomenal you were flawless i'm probably to cut out a little bit of my histrionics you were great man you were great no you were actually the best i've ever heard you you were just lasered in dude i'm gonna have a very short monologue so i know people want to get right to you so we just have to now become religious just have faith that it's going to happen somehow some way that incompetence can lead this franchise to great heights. It's a weird place to be. Yep, I mean, Sashi Brown is a modern-day martyr. If you're Deshaun Kaiser's dad, and this is your son's future, his dream, you're forced to sit idly by while this Machiavellian character betrays your son. Oh my God, you got your Browns jersey on? What is that? Yeah, it's an Andre Risen jersey. Yeah, Andre Risen. It's, it's a hipster Browns jersey. That's what I am. I'm a hip guy. I'm wearing a Browns jersey. This is happening, Evan. A little nervous. You had a turn of a phrase or something, and I thought, man, people are going to like this show. Because they're ready, man. We've trained an army of new Browns fans. A little nervous. When he finds a good scheme that's actually working and virtuous and not illegal, he wants to throw that scheme out, but he wants to keep the schemes that are illegal and would get you investigated by the FBI! 
John Dorsey is the dictionary definition of a cocoon hire. The Sonic Truth show wouldn't upload to SoundCloud because it was four and a half hours. I, I had to split it into like two shows. God, how in the hell does that happen? And the night before, I spent an hour trying to find the original janitor comment. I couldn't fucking find it. And I finally found it at the end of this eight-minute Krishan Hogan highlight. My eyes were, like, about to close. I was like, I know I have it in here. It's somewhere. We can't do a Sonic Truth best of without the janitors. We need the janitor and we need the Wolverine where he talks about fighting a Wolverine. I just felt like a hero. We can't have a show without those two things. Because Nate rips people who are janitors, right? Yeah, he kills janitors. He's like, oh no, 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 no. I don't respect janitors. And I was like, whoa! Last night would have been the ideal backstage pass if I got your permission. It would have been. Oh my fuck, I was so mad. Like, when you said that, and I hung up, I was like, I don't have any backstage pass idea. Oh, fuck Christ, fucking hell. That would have been the best backstage pass ever. That they would strangle this nascent, talent-rich franchise just at the very moment it was starting to sprout. Greg Williams was just out here running the same shit-ass scheme he always does, and then he lied about it. The same Greg Williams who wears fake glasses to look smarter? You can't make this shit up, Evan. You can't make this shit up. Proactively set up their quarterback to fail. I think this was the best 0-16 team of all time. They literally ran their defensive scheme to essentially prevent their players from creating turnovers. The money ball approach, it doesn't work. Money ball. The defense's version of David Njoku or Duke Johnson would be a guy by the name of Larry Ogunjobi. Because they were yo-yoing him in and out of the fucking lineup all the time. Schematic atrocities. This motherfucker's Machiavelli. He is a Machiavellian coach, this motherfucker. I mean, their offensive and defensive like decision-making in terms of like personnel employment, it, it really was so egregious that it really makes you wonder, I think, if they were doing it on purpose. Except Paul D. Podesta and this other guy that you talked about that's picked a lot of players and knows what he's doing, that still has a role that no one knows about, but everyone else has lost their mind, including me! Larry Ogunjobi. People think it's a shtick, and it definitely is a shtick. Of course, it's a fucking shtick. I mean, no, I'm not like this in real life. I, no one would be able to live with me, and I'd have no friends. If I was like this in real life, of course, it's a fucking shtick. But I am truly stunned by how this team is affecting me emotionally because I'm not ready for it. I, I'm a Patriots fan. I'm not ready for this. I didn't ask for this. I don't want to be emotionally invested in the fucking Cleveland Browns. But it happened. It happened without my permission. And now I'm here. And these things enrage me. Because I didn't even know half of what you said. I follow you on Twitter, I read your articles, and I follow the Browns, and yet I didn't know half of what you said today. I mean, this was revelatory. And so when that emotion bubbles up, it's real. Larry Ogunjobi.